Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, welcome on to our weekly free edition of Dunked On, uh, typically on Sunday nights. want to remind you, of course, to listen to Hollinger and Duncan, which is coming out tomorrow, but then we'll actually be moving to Thursdays after that. So we'll have two free things. Danny's got Real GM Radio that's later in the week as as well. So there's still three podcasts that we're doing per week uh, that are going to be free. Hollinger Duncan, just search Hollinger in your podcast player. Danny, uh, obviously at Real GM Radio, you can search for that as well. But let's get right into it here. We want to talk a little off season before we get into the two most recent games. We got a long, long episode for you here. And I solicited a a number of questions on Twitter about the off season. It's going to be an off season mailbag so why don't we get started here danny what do you want to talk about first well it sounds like what people in the mailbag want to talk about maybe that's because of when this was posited is jeremy grant and we got a lot of questions about him and we'll start i think this is a good big picture one from uh tuki tuki given that he's proven to be a viable defender for the Kawhi braun Giannis type and seems to be on his way to at least an average offensive player how much do you think Jeremy Grant is worth in a vacuum, acknowledging that that might not be what he gets this offseason because everything's so weird. And I still think he's, you know, probably going to be a lower usage offensive player, but I do like Grant's defensive versatility. You know, he can he can be an on-ball guy, but also he I, I like some of, originally Grant's appeal to me defensively was as a weak side player, and I think that he can do that as well depending on what the other team has. My instinct is kind of in the line of solid starter money, and so, like from, so for me that's 15 to 22 million probably per year would be kind of the range in a vacuum 22 million oh baby i mean if the way he's defended defended and he can be a capable offensive player the most interesting thing to me for that is doing more with the ball in his hands in the lakers series like basically the lakers challenged him and yes that's a small sample size and i'm not saying that's who jeremy grant is forever but the idea of him being able to do more than be a reluctant jump shooter is certainly a positive but yeah i could see i could see it going that range i mean if like because here's the other big potential swing factor for Jeremy Grant. If he's more of a defensively, if he's more of a wing than a just a power forward, he becomes yeah. a much more valuable player because those wing-sized forward defender, like the guys who can defend the Kawaiyanis type, that's that's a totally different selection. Like that is a, a smaller field, and that's the group that gets paid that kind of money. And it's also remember Jeremy Grant's on the open market. He's not on the we're talking about he, you know, like in a vacuum, not what he's going to get this offseason, because I think that's going to be dramatically less yeah uh, certainly so many pieces of uncertainty with grant but 
Yeah, the fact that he could successfully play the three, and yes, he's doing that next to the greatest offensive center in basketball with Nikola Jokic, but he certainly has improved his three-point shooting. He has less of a dip. He can get his release off a, a little bit faster. He's not shy about shooting it anymore. He's also able to run the baseline, get some offensive rebounds, finish very nicely around the rim, maybe play as a role man if you have another stretch big. So he's got some offensive versatility, shown some ability to attack closeouts at times in these playoffs too there are certainly questions about what his shooting is going to look like on a higher volume he's had a couple of years now of shooting it in the high 30s but the volume has been lower but he played a lot of his minutes next to mason Plumley and with the bench guys and he stepped in seamlessly as a starter i got asked to on the nba cast but i think it's worth elaborating here of just how i'm treating some of these bubble performances and i think i'm taking them with more of a grain of salt than i would a typical playoff performance because there are just so many different factors and we don't know what the impact of all of them is whether it's being able to not have to travel at all and having more energy whether it's having a better shooting background or the same shooting background every time whether it's luck or is it guys really worked on their game for four months who had a real off season during the hiatus and and who kind of you know just due to covid restrictions or just how comfortable they felt about being out wasn't really able to work on their game there's so many things that have changed and so i don't want to go too far in one direction or the other right because you could on the one hand you'd be like ah you know this is a different environment like this is a small sample we've seen all these aberrations on the other hand because it's different you could be having more selection bias in actually noticing more supposed outliers and changes and dismissing them because you are looking for more aberrations now the miami heat making the finals and the clippers losing to denver well and all the three one series losses and that kind of thing yeah well it only ended up being two right yeah i guess it did yeah both but both involving denver um and also some teams not having continuity beforehand and maybe the bubble mentally there's some players who could deal with that better than others or some teams that could deal with that better than others and that's not gonna mean anything going forward so ultimately i think i really it's gonna take for my personal evaluation and obviously with the 2020 free agent you can't necessarily look at this but for my personal evaluation if jamal murray say for example has an incredible start to next year and plays at the same level for the first 10 games then all right i think i'm gonna i'm much more likely to buy it but i can't go all in and so i have to kind of discount this bubble performance a little bit here and then i guess the other thing you got to look at too danny is these guys had an off season before this year or before these playoffs but now they're not necessarily going to have a full off season afterwards so if you're going to say oh this guy is 24 this guy is 26 think of how good he's going to be next year 27 maybe he doesn't see the same level of increase that he normally would between this bubble season and the beginning of next season there's just so many things to consider that i'm really sort of gun shy about yeah. counting these for them. or who knows maybe next season we'll start late enough that they get another off season i'd be like it, it could it could <laughs> oh, end up happening God forbid, man. and i, I think uh, here's an here's another way that i i and this is something i think went unsaid in yours though i i believe you feel this way because that's how we are as analysts is the difference between kind of fundamentals and results so jamal murray's shooting Yes, I, I don't expect him, you know, we, we, that that came up on Dunked on Prime recently. To talk, I went through his series-by-series series shooting numbers during the bubble, which were ridiculous. And it was, over, you know, over 40% in the playoffs. Yeah, that's, I don't I don't think that's necessarily going to continue. But if you want to use Jamal, like, the way that he was using his handle to get himself open and some of the moves that he was using and wrong footing guys, those are building blocks. 
that aren't going away. Now, maybe teams get more used to it. Maybe he's not ca- he's not wrong-footing guys as much next year. But that's really where I'm looking. And that's like, so for Jeremy Grant, getting back to the original question, his capacity to defend— There's an original question? Wait, what? <laughs> I mean, like 10 minutes ago. Um, to, is <laughs> like the Is that— his capacity to defend those wings isn't really going anywhere. Now, maybe outside of the bubble, maybe Kawhi Leonard wasn't playing great, but I mean, he did a pretty good job on LeBron as well. I didn't think he did as great of a job on Anthony Davis, but why the hell would you expect him to? And so, yeah, I think there's a lot with with these players, with various players that we will take forward. And maybe it's, you know, smaller degrees on the overall, but that's why, you know, like for me with Grant, I, 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 I've been intrigued by his potential before, but he is a, he is a, I have a clear vision of what he could be. Now, could be and is are two dramatically different things. And Denver's probably going to benefit that they're going to, they're not going to have to pay for the could be part. They're going to get more of the is just because of the way the market works out. Um, But that's how I want to actually pivot this to you. So let's say my evaluation is right. And I think yours is probably a little lower than that. Jeremy Grant has a player option. And this year, tepid market, there are only five teams that have cap space. I don't even know how many of them are going to be interested in Grant at the kind of numbers that I was just throwing out there. How big of a swing do you think it would be for him to opt in and basically, if some of that could be leveraged, because remember, they could theoretically, the Nuggets could, and Grant could agree to an extension before the end of next season. Like that is something that could happen as well. To basically say, I want to bet on myself and be a, you know, a smaller fish, but in a dramatically bigger pond. Yeah, I think a lot of that kind of depends on what the plan is for Denver too. If the plan is let's start him at the three, start Michael Porter Jr. at the four, and you know, and, and I think Grant can look pretty good with offensively. Like that's the biggest thing, right? If you're talking about him as a combo forward, maybe starter, maybe not. Versus this guy is our starting three, and oh by the way, he's got enough size to guard the biggest wings on the other team effectively. You know, that is a tremendously valuable player, and perhaps I'm anchoring too closely to what the conception of Grant had. Been been before and you know that player option for around nine million or so right around the mid-level exception an extension could only start at 120 percent of what he's making now so that seems you know i i think now denver would have bird rights on him and so they can pay him more but there isn't really a number of great suitors outside of him maybe atlanta actually could take a a look at him Uh, although having as as an iffy shooter you know if you want to bring him in to be a starting three that's a a, a little bit of a question mark um phoenix is is on that another questioner said maybe they could go for him as a younger guy he's only 26 too and that's the other really nice thing about him that phoenix could go there instead of you know your Millsap or your gallinari or something like that and play him next to DeAndre Ayton and you know that Mikhail Bridges and Jeremy Grant could all of a sudden be a very very nice defensive front court yeah may- maybe a team like Phoenix is going to go high and pay him 15 million I say a team like Phoenix I mean is there any other suitor out there that you see for him day I don't think Charlotte's the right place and Detroit like that's that's one of the worst the worst things for Grant is that two of the teams with cap space just aren't close enough and Maybe Cupcheck is yeah. optimistic and just goes, we're, we're close with I don't, but I don't, I don't particularly think so. I mean, there are only, you know, five or so teams that can really get there. And also remember, yes, it's true that, you know, usually talent finds a way and you could, you know, if the Nuggets don't want to sign and trade him, he could finagle it. But there aren't that many teams that are going to easily be able to clear cap space this summer either, especially with the, the likely lowering due to COVID. Like, it, I, I think that if that leverage largely comes from him being a free agent in 21 so yeah i don't really see anybody else that's a a clear cut if what he wants to do is maximize his his salary 
Okay, let's, uh, yeah, so, so my, my prediction is he's gonna opt out, and I think he's gonna get, like, 45 to 50 million guaranteed. That's what I think. Yeah, I, I think you're about right, and I think, I think that will, it's not a mistake, because it is just your tolerance for risk. But I think that will, you know, that will be significantly less than he could, emphasis on could, have gotten on the 2021 market. I want to do this question for yeah. Oh, what, one more thing too. Just Denver, you know, they're the most likely suitor for him, particularly if Millsap leaves. And if you take away all of the guys that they have as free agents, they've got about $30 million under the tax. So if 15 of that goes to Grant, and then, you know, maybe Millsap would want to come back. But I think I think he's probably going to look for pastures where he could still get more playing time. Maybe Plumlee would come back on something like, you know, a $5 million a year deal as a backup center or more because they just smart Barlstein and the Nuggets just pay guys. But it, so maybe that's what ends up happening and they, they can end up affording him there. But just wanted to put that team context in there as well before we move on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, and let's move on to a quick break here. Okay. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences. Hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz. Find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Now, Danny has attempted to ask this question twice, so please take it away. Uh, so this question is from at Hobby Calvin. What is the biggest free agency storyline nobody is talking about? And I've hit this a couple times in my offseason previews for The Athletic, and it's going to come up. Uh, Dallas's is not yet out. And I think that the, I'm going to try to hammer this home in theirs, which is this idea that there is this com- kind of easily understood truism that it's like, if you want to not, if you want to have available money in a future year, just don't spend money, you know, like don't commit long-term salary and yeah that's totally that's a totally reasonable way to do it and you know there, there will be there will also be teams that use that as cover you know that they will that will say i you know oh we're you know we want to keep things in tw- we want to keep things for 2021 so we don't do that however 
I think that given the really weak market this year, there is a group of teams headed by the Dallas Mavericks, and Miami could end up in this boat a different way through bird rights, where spending on contracts that become that are or become positive value actually is the better decision because one, it makes you better in the immediate. And especially if the part of the goal was to be... Wait, so, so you're saying Dallas and Miami should give out long-term... No, contracts? no, I'm saying Dallas should. I, sh- I shouldn't have brought in Miami. That's going to confuse the subject. Dallas should. Because the, here's the idea. Uh, spending, let's say, $9 million on on somebody this on somebody this offseason who will make you better for next season. Now, it is a risk because you might have to theoretically offload it. But also remember that once the league gets back to normal, it's very hard to ridiculously overpay at that kind of money. The, you're not going to get into a Chandler Parsons or a Nick Batum situation because you can't pay a guy more than about $10 million a year. Like that, nobody, like there are a lot of teams that don't have that capacity unless you have cap space. And so I think Dallas is probably i'm trying to think of the other like 2021 maybe new orleans could potentially be in this boat depending on how i don't know how david griffin wants to structure their books but it's basically these teams that are gonna value their 2021 space sure absolutely but you might be better off spending committing something that you can eventually get off to be better and potentially even create a piece of value yeah, I mean, it's uh, certainly a risk there where if that player gets injured or something and you're Dallas, you may not be able to create the cap space that you want. But certainly if it's a smaller contract, you know, $10 million or under, then I understand where you're coming from. I'm not sure whether I can give you something that we haven't discussed before or that no one else has discussed before, but these are some of my general thoughts on how it's going to go. I think this is going to be like 2018 offseason, but even worse with just the one-year deals. Again, it seems like we're on this cycle of where you have big free agent year 2018 nothing happens 2019 huge free agent year 2020 nothing happens particularly due to the economic uncertainty and the uncertainty of evaluating players and teams based on what happened in the bubble and the fact that there aren't really any superstar players that seem like they're going to be available this summer in trade and so i think that very little is going to happen there'll be some one-year deals that get signed i don't see that many teams making moves this summer to open up more space for 2021 and then at the 2021 trade deadline is when the fireworks are really going to start where team you know a team like houston maybe if they're just totally floundering they could break everything up or washington when john wall comes back they're clearly not going to make the playoffs and then maybe they could move on brad beal it's just i think everyone is feeling like they just don't have enough information (laughs) to do anything right now and there could be a first mover advantage as you had kind of referenced there both in terms of trades and in terms of free agent contracts if you're willing to go more than a year but historically i think there's there's kind of a hurting and a conservatism with that kind of stuff so that's the biggest thing uh, that i I would point to i have two more as a big trend i have two more one is players that have have specific internal leverage but not external so the, to me the two headliners here are Contavious Caldwell Pope and Joe Harris both of those guys their team has the capacity to re-sign them but it's also hard to imagine them really drumming up a serious market so how far are those teams with deep pockets the Nets and the Lakers who have lofty aspirations for 21 for 2020 slash 21 how, how far are they going to go and then the other huge one to me and this gets into your 2021 trade deadline thing which is what made me think of it is this avalanche of pending free agents who are uncertain whether they're going to stay on their current teams or not. So Victor Oladipo, Drew Holiday, Josh Richardson, maybe Conley. I think he's kind of, because he's older, he's in a different camp. Does any, does there 
become any clarity on any of those situations? Does it lead teams to, to go in different directions? Because usually, you know, you would say if if you have a good player and you think that he's going to leave, then unless you're like a serious contender, you're probably not going to let them go and get nothing for them. But those teams, you know, the Pelicans and the Pacers are in different situations. And I'm really wondering, I don't know whether that's going to be an off-season storyline or whether that's going to end up being an in-season storyline, because it could be either, it could be both. But I think that's going to be the other thing that really rocks the league. And I don't think it's going to be Kawhi or Paul George or anything like that. But the Oladipo, Drew Holiday class could have some real movers. And because those players might end up going to really good teams. No, you, you make a great point there. I mean, there's just going to be so many, because 2020 was a crappy free agent class, then there weren't that many of those players at the 2020 trade deadline, and now there are because it's a good free agent class in 2021. Uh, where do you want to go next here? Oh, we can do this one from at Stonecutter7. If you're a team that needs a stopper big wing type but only has the mid-level, who is the guy you're taking a chance on? And it is very difficult because those players aren't available very often, and when they're, when they're available, they cost more money than that. But if I had to roll the dice on somebody, I think I would do it on Derek Jones Jr. He's an imperfect player player but he's a phenomenal athlete and he's not really the same like big wing stopper he's not physically strong enough but I I don't know I think I I think that he's maybe the best shot at it of somebody who's actually available yeah and he's got enough length and athleticism he's going to get stronger as well that you know he's like switched on to Pascal Siakam at the end of games and and did fine on him you know we haven't seen him try to guard LeBron James for a playoff series maybe we'll uh we'll get to find that out (laughs) in a little bit but yeah I mean who who are our, our other options here I mean there's Jay Crowder there's there's Glenn Robinson the third. There's Jeremy Grant. Tory Craig. Marcus Morris. But Grant and Morris are probably out of that price range. Yeah, Craig is 29 already. I mean, that's not really amazing. Uh, and he's restricted as well. Harkless isn't really that kind of guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's... I think he's going to get someone underpaid. Someone who might come to mind. I'm sorry? I think Harkless is going to get underpaid, but we talked about that a little bit when we did the forwards. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's, you know, semi Ojale if if they decline the team option. Yeah, there's not a lot out there. And then for two guards who are not as good of a defensive group, you've been KCP as uh, Justin Holiday, Wes Matthews. Some of those guys can play up a little bit in the right matchup. Uh, Garrett Temple is up there too. But yeah, I mean, just because he's young and, he's the only one of these guys that is really a good enough athlete where you, he could truly be elite i would absolutely take the chance on and even if he can't shoot you can get to some lineups where he can be the role man especially if you have any kind of a stretch big from michael zanettis the best player the bucks could sign for the mid-level exception my first thought is Wes Matthews. <laughs> well, he's not going to take up that much, though. Yeah, but I'm just thinking about who could reasonably who could reasonably do that. Well, so I think Wes Matthews. I mean, if he has his, you know, if he has his druthers, he could ask for more than the non-bird rights, and non-bird off the minimum is pretty soft. Um, it, and I mean, there aren't because remember, and remember, if Wes Matthews doesn't come back, then the Bucks need a replacement starter, and that could be Dante Divincenzo. Of course, he he had he had some strong moments this year. Uh, I mean, so well, uh, yeah, uh, well. Let's let's talk about whether they can even use the mid-level first they've got let's say robin lopez opts in let's say they cut ursan Ilyasova, uh who guarantees two days after the 2020 draft so they're gonna have to make a decision on him very quickly uh they so you basically have to have a deal done at the draft or you know maybe they can come up with a, a an agreement to push that back for him a little bit but you know they might need him in trade maybe they would just allow him to guarantee just so they can have some trade fodder for later but let's say they move on from him i think you get someone better than him for the mid-level uh west matthews opts out they don't give uh sterling brown a qualifying offer 
and and don't bring him back that gives them 15.8 million below the apron by my calculations again you know we don't know exactly where the cap's going to be but that's the best estimate if the cap's the same as as last year so yeah you could probably use your full mid-level exception there now you're going to be of course into the tax they've assured Giannis that they will pay the tax and you know I could see using the full mid-level exception as a great excuse to not have to like seriously go into the tax um and you know the, fine they'll pay five million in tax like that's not shit you know but they can technically say that they went into the tax so maybe they could so so they assuming they have the full mid-level just wanted to lay out their situation before we get into it so i mean there are a couple of different ways that you could think about it so it would be nice to have another guy who could who could initiate half court offense that you know so in case things aren't working out but so this is and that is one of the weakest points in this class because you can't get the top guys for mid-level exception money that's that's virtually assured even as the bucks so then like so from that perspective of people who could theoretically be available in the price range you're talking more the augustine teague reggie jackson tier i don't think those guys are worth that especially not for the bucks then on the wing i mean west matthews Clarkson. what Clarkson sure Burks could be a possibility but I mean first of all I think Wes Matthews is a significantly better player than Alex Burke and then Alec Burks um yeah it's really only worth it to me to spend that if you're the Bucks if you are and not guarantee Ilya Sova because if they guarantee Ilya Sova then they're done for the the full mid-level um it's it's got to be someone who can plausibly be in your closing lineup is that Jordan Clarkson uh, uh, probably not uh, you know I mean now they could throw a deal at Goran Dragic they could go uh, much like the Lakers they could go like try to do full mid-level for three or four years at Dragic and the Heat aren't going to want to do a number of years for Dragic so maybe they could trump a one-year offer from the Heat but the Heat have plenty of room too below the tax to bring back Dragic and Crowder so uh, I would imagine the Heat could just go high enough on a one-year deal that Dragic would want to just stay there particularly because you know they just made the NBA finals in the Bucks and it's Miami instead of Milwaukee. And I mean, I'm sure there'd be interest in Marquette product, Jay Crowder, but his, you know, his overall limitation shooting bubble notwithstanding. Um, and I don't know that he, you know, that he is a great fit for their, well, so I mean, what I guess would the idea there be that he he's kind of the Marvin Williams type. So you close with him and Giannis at the four and the five. Yeah, I guess that's the idea. I don't love Derek Jones Jr. there. GR3 would be potentially worth it. I don't think he's worth the full mid-level. And I think he, again, another guy who I'm, I'm confident is going to get underpaid just because you and I like him more and he hasn't, you know, when, whenever a guy's taken as little as he has, you generally see it go that way. Do you think there would be, I mean, I don't think he would take it, but do you, do you make a call to Gallinari? Sure. I mean, it, it, yeah, if you could get him for that, of course, but I, I don't, I, I imagine Gallo will have uh, more lucrative offers uh, than that. Um, and he's kind of a warm weather guy as well. Let's, uh, let's try and speed up here. Let's get into uh, a few other of these questions here. Um, this is a good one from Vincent Lynn. Which player from the bubble will be overpaid from their performance? So we're saying that the bubble essentially is not representative going forward. It could, it, I mean, it would be on a one year deal, but Dragic is a pretty, is a clear possibility. I mean, especially if he, yeah. You know, he. This is the kind of a perfect sample for him. You know, like doesn't short short term. Didn't have to put all the work. Didn't have to put all the work in. Dwight Howard. Yeah, he's just not going to get that much, regardless, though, as a center. I, I don't think it's going to be Derek Jones Jr. 
Um, what about Derek White on an extension? Oh, that could be. I was I was thinking of somebody on the Suns. That's kind of a parallel yeah. example. I, there. I'm high on White uh, to be clear, and I think that the aggressiveness he showed shooting the ball for the Spurs was very encouraging. But if that were to disappear and he gets paid on what he was in the bubble and what they think he's going to be going for, the other thing too is that you know if they're giving him an extension, assuming that like you know he's going to have the growth that he would have if he's 23, but he's 26. You know that could that could be an issue. But the Spurs have a very very clean cap sheet going forward and they develop guys and they want to feel like they're continuing to build for the future so it does seem like a little bit of a recipe for him to get more but on the other hand the market is pretty crappy and so that could depress things regardless of some of those factors i talked about but he's he's a guy who could be a regression candidate even though i i'm high on him I'm trying to think if there are any players who are kind of on the, because I think that's an interesting call with Dwight about players who are kind of on the lower end who could see a significant bump, even though it's not to a significant salary. And there just aren't that many free agents. Oh, how about Rondo? What about Rondo? Oh, Dave? that's a good call. Yeah, I could absolutely see that with with the Lakers or elsewhere. Yeah, and Van Vliet it's just it's a question of like what kind of a team it is i mean if he comes to the knicks and he's making over 20 million a year people are going to be like what the hell like this guy isn't the point guard that we've always wanted who's running a bunch of pick and roll like if he goes to the wrong place where they're asking him to do too much offensively then i think he could end up being perceived as overpaid even though it's the same player that he always was um from option zero how high does miami go to keep crowder if they have eyes on 2021 i don't think they offer jay crowder any significant guaranteed money beyond next season and so it's the same question as Goran Dragic of how high are they willing to go with bird rights in on a one-year deal to keep him around. Yeah, and they've got plenty of room uh, to do that, as we talked about. Below the tax for next year, they got $44 million bucks. That's Even if it's only one-year deals, that's plenty, I think. I mean, that's probably enough to even bring back Jones Jr., Dragic, and Crowder, you would think. Uh, interesting question from Tickleman20. Uh, who are the biggest... Uh, are, Oh, actually, sorry. I want to do this one first um, from user-generated. We'll do that one next. Uh, will there be a premium on bubble free agents compared to non-bubble free agents given the long layoff for teams not in the bubble? I think mostly no. I mean, those the non-bubble players haven't had a chance to like prove themselves, but I don't think that's going to hurt like Bertans necessarily, like some of those type of guys. But on the margins, yeah, I think there could be. You know, so like if we're talking mid-level and below, so the, the I think they're going those players. It's a little bit out of sight, out of mind that could end up really hurting them like a wayne ellington yeah. type um what was the next one that you wanted to oh, do so the uh it was the from from tickleman 20 uh who are the biggest bubble free agent winners and losers the players who have done the most to help or hurt their their free agent stock and i mean in a normal year grant probably would have been high on that list um could do that to, to you know have this but but it's such a weird year i the guy I wanted to ask about the guy that was was interested in these questions. Do you think Marcus Morris's market changed at all? I mean, the Clippers didn't. He he wasn't great in their series, but also like he has that a, another guy who has that very specific leverage because the Clippers can't replace him. You do wonder what the other suitor for him is. Like, yeah, this is another one of these internal versus external leverage situations. He's not going to go back to Phoenix. Maybe the Knicks could sign him again to a one-year, fifteen million dollar deal and then trade him at the deadline to the Clippers again. <laughs> Uh, well, the Clippers don't have any picks uh, uh, that they can trade right now is the problem. So, yeah, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe instead of 18, he's going to get 13 now or 14. Maybe that's possible. Um, and in that same vein, Planet FOMO asked, knowing what we now know now about the Clippers, how would a Lakers versus Clippers Western Conference Finals have turned out? Something we've seen from the Lakers is that generally they've done a much better job figuring out their opposing offense, like the opponent's offense over the course of a series. 
series and they've done a better job. That's incidentally something I thought the Nuggets did well against the Clippers as well. And I think that could have potentially been a factor. Um, we saw, but but one thing that I think would have been a challenge for the Lakers in that series is, you know, I think the Clippers at, at moments would have bet would have made a, made a more concerted effort to have their support players, have the Lakers support players beat them. And I think that's something the Nuggets should have done more. And I think, I think Doc could have gone that direction. Also, they have, not that anybody has perfect personnel, but I think they have better personnel to slow down the Lakers stars. And that was why you and I were both thinking that the Nuggets would have real trouble in the series. After game six, even if the Clippers had won game seven, I was probably going to pick the Lakers in six at that point. If the season had gone as normal, I think the Clippers would have beaten them. Uh, uh, the Lakers looked better in the bubble. The Clippers looked worse. They And they just had all these issues. I mean, where Harrell was so bad, Lou Williams would have been a massive defensive liability. And we thought that the Clippers' depth would be huge. We thought that they wouldn't have an answer for Kawhi. The Lakers wouldn't. And that they had a lot of options to put on LeBron, whereas the Lakers didn't have anybody to guard Kawhi and Paul George as well. And LeBron would get tired out by having to guard one of those guys. And those things would have been true to some extent i think now if the clippers could have just beaten denver in game five and they weren't as fatigued then maybe but we also saw just that the clippers were not in amazing shape so i I think it probably would have been lakers and six had they met in the bubble yeah it's fair especially because like i mean it's not like montrez harrell was getting significantly better physically over the course of that series to make you think that another give him another two weeks and he'll he'll be totally fine no uh let's do a couple more here and then i'm actually going to save the rest of these for my pod with hollinger and we can talk about the free agent bigs before we talk about the games. Oh, sure, sure. We can do this one from Koldar Arg. There were a lot of sign-in trades last year. Is that going to be the case this season as well, or was that anomaly and why? And I think it was an anomaly relative to 2020 because there aren't that many players where the, the situation... I mean, so there are a couple different times that, you, that a sign-in trade will work. One is as a mechanism for, you know, like a restricted free agent or something like that. You could think about the D'Angelo Russell archetype here. There aren't that many restricted free agents that I think are going to really change teams this year that a lot of times it's going to be squeezing leverage because there are fewer suitors, all that type of stuff. Then the other type where it happens is where there's a talented free agent, but that team can't make it work. And this is the Jimmy Butler idea. And there just aren't that many, there aren't players that are worth that. I mean, Anthony Davis obviously would be, but it doesn't seem like he's going anywhere. And so I, I think that those two not being there. And then the other big part is that a sign-in trade, when basically every team in the league is over the cap, it gets more logistically complicated, not only because of the hard cap, but because a lot of these teams are trying to cut money. And in a sign-in trade, you're generally adding money. So it's to your long-term books, to your short-term books, it depends on the circumstance. So I don't think we're going to see as much of it this year. It could make a return in 21, but I think that really depends on where the best players want to go. Yeah, and also just the lack of wiggle room under the tax and the apron for a lot of teams with the cap just being a little bit lower, teams not having money. And just there's also no one out there. It seems like there aren't that many big trade exceptions either. And one of the teams that has a big one, the Warriors, they can't get someone in a side and trade because they're going to be over the apron anyway. And so there aren't that many players who it's really worth moving heaven and earth to try and get either. So I, I do think it'll be fewer because you think about it, right like the only guys you're going to use as a sign and trade for is guys who are making above the mid-level exception otherwise you would just use your mid-level exception to get those players unless you also wanted to move use your mid-level as well and you wanted to give up an asset to trade a salary you didn't want to get the guy that that gets a little bit more confusing so who are the players out there even 
you know gallo is probably the only one you would think uh, who is going to go to a contender and okc might just go into rebuilding mode and maybe they can pick up an asset and take on a bad salary for trading that's that's the one that really sticks out to me as the most logical one there aren't many other players where i'm like yeah this guy seems like a really good sign trade candidate are you Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the Bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside these things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout easy remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us to talk uh the free agent big men here let's uh let's take a quick break first and we'll get to that okay danny uh, quick reminder here on how we do this i know you know that but our listeners may not remember we break things down into superstar star starter rotation and fringe and of course we look at the unrestricted free agents and the restricted free agents no superstars no stars you agree with that absolutely and so that gets us into the starter range and generally unless it's an old guy i think of a starter as a guy who you're comfortable bringing in and committing enough of a contract to that you think of this player as your long-term starter and i i guess i have this is interesting to say well let me ask you this i want to get your opinion you see what my ranking is who is the best free agent big on the market the one whom you if you had a blank slate would offer the most guaranteed money to it might be Derek favors yeah he he's a guy who might be really undervalued based on the bubble he looked awful and but at 28 he's got a lot of injury issues a lot of mileage in his past knee issues back issues it just seems like they continue to pop up playing at his absolute best you like favors over Serge Ibaka? Ah, I mean, no, I, I think I'd probably go Ibaka one favors two. I think that because Ibaka can space yeah. the floor, he can be, you know, we, we've, we've seen him work in a variety of successful defenses. But what I like about Derek Favors is the idea of him as a plug-and-play member of a competent defense. But Ser- so Serge Ibaka's versatility helps. So yeah, I think I go Ibaka one favors two. Yeah, I had Ibaka number one as well. And I mean, despite the fact that he's listed at 30 and Derek Favors is 28, Ibaka to me looks like younger more spry than Derek Favors does and has fewer injury issues and as a shooter I think he can age a little bit better Favors does have that ability as a role man but that really seems to have kind of waned and you know he had to play a lot of minutes with Zion Williamson as well it's not perfect setup for him the other guys that I have in the starter category Andre Drummond is a player option at age 
26 he's gonna opt into that it's like 28 million you got 35 year old Marcus Gasol 26 year old Montrose Harrell and 24 year old Christian Wood anything you want to comment on with any of those players I really like Christian Wood I've been I, I, I he has potential as being a big that can protect the rim and space the floor not that he has done a great job of either of those particularly throughout his career he's also bounced around a lot which can be an indicator of other things and but if I you know like if I were thinking of in the idea of like, okay, this player is going to be a starter and my team is going to be competitive. I and I know I'm in I know I'm in the minority here. I would rather pay Christian Wood than Montrez Harrell because with Harrell, we know his defensive limitations and they're going nowhere. Like those 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 are a problem. And with centers, yes, if you're Nikola Jokic, if you're Carl Anthony Towns, you could make it work. I don't think Harrell's at that level. And so I I think that he will be useful and in the right circumstance, that could be the Clippers, it could be somewhere else. He can be a valued part of your rotation totally fine that he won six man of the year this year but i would rather roll the dice on christian wood than the like the the expected value for me is is just slightly higher yeah you know i think the other thing that he has is a great skill that you didn't mention is his great finishing around the rim sure. as well so he's got the versatility to space the floor uh, he can run in in transition i mean he's a very very good offensive center and the question is can he really defend on, on a real team you know he's just played basically all of his minutes in his career in pretty much non-competitive situations and he's been in competitive situations and not played like he was on the bucks right yeah but he was brought in as a flyer for the bucks obviously and then new orleans last year he was a backup for a detroit team that had some aspirations at the start of the year but when he really started going crazy but you know some of the particularly the offensive metrics for him are really really good and i definitely think he can be better defensively than montrose harrell can although in terms of his execution definitely thin going against the larger centers like he's definitely he's not a great option and probably a guy who fits better on a team like say Detroit that isn't as good of a team and just needs some offense from a a position and if he's not amazing defensively in the playoffs then so be it oh so here's here's my question with Wood I I mean I've been saying Wood to the Hornets for a while if Charlotte and it's complicated also because Montrezl Harrell is from New from North Carolina if you were if you had the GM job there and you had the opportunity you know like this is a, a you know then you could say I don't want to spend on either of those guys would you rather have Wood or would you rather have Harold? No, I think just about every situation, I probably would pick Wood. Now, Harold is 26. He's younger than a lot of free agents, unrestricted free agents, but particularly after his bad bubble, he's not going to continue to be that bad. But just as an undersized guy, like I think we've probably already seen the best of him. Like he's not going to really develop a jump shot. The, those are usually the skill things that can really help you improve as you're older. Maybe he could get a little better as a passer, but as a D, he's not going to improve as a defensive rebounder. Probably not going to improve as a switch guy he's not going to improve his help instincts that much so uh and i think wood is just you're probably going to get better value there as well yeah um gasol and abaco we've talked about many times it seems like there's very little buzz about them at least as of now maybe that'll change but the idea of them going back to toronto on one-year deals that are pretty lucrative they they also another nice thing for them too is if they do that they would have the ability to block a trade which they might want it that they might want well and there's Um, the possibility that marcus goes back to spain 
seems early for that because of how much he can get paid. I mean, I think I could see him. Well, and because he can contribute year. to a yeah. potential title team. Like you know, it's not sure. like he's it's not like he's choosing between the minimum on a bad team and and going somewhere else. Yeah, and so would he want to go to another team for mid level or the taxpayer mid level? Just something more permanent, maybe a bigger role where he's assured of starting, as opposed to where Ibaka is always going to be there as well in Toronto. Maybe, but he may also really like that he did win a championship there after all. So it really comes down to just what those guys want, which we don't have a, a great understanding of right. at this point. So that's that's everyone I have in my starter group. Well, and I think that's an interesting bridge point to the next group because the next group has a lot of players that have had big roles and made a lot of money in their careers and aren't necessarily like super old, like Tristan Thompson, age 29. This, I think, was July 1st of 2020 is when these ages were in. Hassan right. Whiteside, 31. Mason Plumley, 30. I'm sure a lot of these guys, Nerlens Noel, 26. DeMarcus is different because of the injuries. DeMarcus Cousins, 29. That they they think, hey, you know, like I've I've not like I'm the same guy that I was when I signed those big contracts. But I think the market has just totally evaporated for all of. Them. Yeah, there's talk that Thompson. I think he might get the biggest deal here because he could just go back to, with bird rights. Like he did not want to do a buyout for that reason. He wanted to retain his bird rights in Cleveland. He he might be another sign and trade candidate, perhaps. Uh, depending on a team really likes him and he had a bounce back year he did more offensively than he had a, a good offensive rebounder it doesn't really protect the rim at age 29 and you know i'm not sure if he can really be a switch guy anymore the way he was three four years ago but i like him the best out of these guys and you could see him being brought in and closing some games he obviously has plenty of experience and then there's kind of two categories in this one is we'll sign you to be our starting center who's not going to close the game and then you also have guys who are really kind of more specialist backup center guys but i see these guys all kind of be being in you know below the full mid-level exception maybe some of these guys could get the mid-level for like a year or two but i don't even see that i, I see almost all these guys like below 10 million in guaranteed money or less yeah over like a two-year period um you know if you're just talking about uh, let me ask you this danny if you wanted to just sign one of these guys for just for next year only who would you be most interested in who could help your team the most I, it would depend on the team but my my first call would be Aaron Baines yeah the only concern at 33 for him is just he struggles so much to stay healthy yeah I mean, that's true. whenever he would get it rolling he I mean that three-point shooting is really cool um and who knows whether that's gonna stick around for him but and he could get to the point where as a pick and roll defender he's just no longer viable defensively and but he's always he's got like a hip issue or an ankle issue or you know the last two years he really has struggled to stay on the court and obviously COVID-19 as well hopefully he's recovered from that but he didn't play at all even in the bubble for the sun so hopefully it's nothing too major in that respect who would you go with yeah, if I look at all these guys, Baines might have been the most effective last year. I actually think it might go with 34-year-old Dwight Howard. He's, I and mean, the is, point that you've yeah. made, which I think is a, is a good one, is that this doesn't look like prime Dwight Howard, but this looks like what 34-year-old Dwight Howard would have looked like without the significant injuries that have plagued his last couple of years. Yeah, he's really gotten into better shape. He's moving his feet. I mean, he still is one of the more mobile centers. Even at 34 right now, he can play different pick-and-roll coverages. He's a relentless offensive rebounder. He runs 
runs the floor hard and no he's probably not going to close games but I think he could be a totally good starting center for you and play 20 or 25 minutes a game kind of the, the Pachulia archetype lobs. yeah I mean he's been floated as someone maybe for the Warriors that they could go after with the mid-level for like one year uh the taxpayer mid-level I think he actually would be a decent fit there uh, in he's not a great decision maker necessarily on the perimeter throwing passes which they, they need a little in their system but he can go up and get some dunks give him an offensive rebounding element I, I, there now he may not stay healthy he may not have the same attitude he may not come in, in the same shape the lakers maybe they would break into their mid-level to bring him back potentially uh, but i mean just for next year which is i think for most of these guys they're looking at mostly one-year deals anyway so the idea of oh this guy's 29 versus this guy is 34 doesn't matter as much because i don't see these guys getting long-term deals well along that note i think the lack of long-term deals is going to lead a lot of these big men to picking up their player options i mean that's a no-brainer for kelly olenic because this is the richest of this group but ennis canner javel mcgee robin lopez willie collie stein like i think all of those players should and knowing what we know right now pick up their player options yeah when willie collie stein opted out of the bubble it seemed like the handwriting was on the wall there mcgee four million yeah hard to see him exceeding that necessarily Cantor, same thing robin lopez you would imagine they'd, they'd want him to stick around to play with his brother he'd want to play with his brother though he could be a trade candidate and probably if i had to rank maybe somebody will be seduced by hassan whiteside and his numbers yeah i mean so hassan whiteside in this year averaged 15 and a half points and 13 and a half rebounds as the starting center for the portland trailblazers and led the nba in block shots per game yeah so maybe that someone would be seduced by that i hope it's not the playoff team uh and he's also another guy who struggled to stay healthy a little bit 31 older than you think because it took him so long to establish his career so if i had to rank these guys in terms of the amount of money i think i'd probably put tristan thompson because he's the youngest of these players he has the championship pedigree as the guy who's going to get the most money probably white side two and maybe plumly three just because he's going to go back to denver and they're just going to pay him because they love him there irrationally yeah i think that's i think that's fair anybody else in this group that you think warrants additional mention i i continue to think that there's a place for nerlens noel in the league above the minimum but i don't know exactly where it is so we'll see what he gets yeah okc could pay him a little bit more than the minimum if they wanted to seems like he might be moving on there taj gibson has a non-guarantee for eight million in new york and that's a pretty early guarantee date as well so you could see them moving on from him he seems more kind of like pretty close to the minimum sort of fodder um also alex len harry giles is an unrestricted free agent supposedly the kings want to re-sign him uh, but they are limited to paying him just under four million uh, because they declined it his fourth year option supposedly reportedly because he wasn't working hard last off season i, I don't i think that will be enough to re-sign him if they want to i don't think that he's gonna be beating down his door he's a good passer that's about all he does uh, and john henson is a rim protector it just has kind of been lost in the ether uh i mean danny can you tell me what team john henson finished the season on last year the Cavs, right no the detroit pistons oh that's right because the drummond trade yeah <laughs> yes i know i really had to think about it too i was like he's on the cast like oh wait a minute no no he's he got he got traded to the pistons he was actually playing a little bit 
I can't. No, I I, I, I remember I talked about I talked about him late in the when he was backing up Christian Wood. I'm now remembering this as like that he's that he could potentially like be actually one of the better minimum centers next year. Um, I also yeah, like, if he could just finish around the basket a little bit better, I I would like him more. He does he's still a decent rim protector. Uh, but yeah, I mean I, I'll be honest, I wasn't too locked in on post trade deadline Pistons game. All I was watching was Christian Wood. So I, I've got some guys in this fringe category. Anybody pop out to you as someone you'd just want to take a flyer on more than some of the others? Let, let the record show that he just paused for like about five five seconds and didn't say anything. And I'm not I'm not unpausing for long. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I Kylo Quinn I've liked for a little while, and I just think there might be a shot. But no, I don't particularly like any of these guys. Um, I'll tell you who would be my pick out of these. And I mean, some of these names: Willie Hernan Gomez, Myers Leonard. Oh, Will, I don't yeah, Willie Hernan Gomez would be my pick yet. of this group, by the way. Yeah, as, as an offense center, I mean, they're a team that definitely needed offense, and they still he still couldn't get on the court for Charlotte. Uh, but only 26. My old crush, Danny, Jan Mahimi. Oh, I, Actually, I, I thought you were going with Julia Locafor, your older crush. Oh, yeah, no, that's uh, that ship sailed, I fear. Uh, but no, Jan Mahimi, again, this would just be a minimum signing, right? But I thought he actually gave the Wizards capable defense as a center. I mean, he's, you know, he's, you'd be signing him as a third center, but just as somebody you're like, you know, break glass and case of emergency this guy could come in as a backup center and knock a few heads and protect the rim let's uh let's switch over to the restricted free agents here and that begins with 24 year old Jakob Pertl in San Antonio really tough time to hit restricted free agency for Pertl I mean I like him as a solid but unremarkable center and he doesn't fit in super well with this iteration of the Spurs but this iteration of the Spurs seems like it's a limited time offer so I think the question with Pertl is do the Spurs offer him enough to make him comfortable mitigating the risk and not like signing a qualifying offer I fully expect that to happen I don't think you're going to get a Chris Dunn situation here but Pirtle you know especially if he has a decent enough year could potentially you know this is just the worst time to be a non-amazing restricted free agent again as I mentioned I think the Spurs Pirtle played well in the bubble the Spurs have a very clean cap sheet going forward they could buy into what the potential that this group showed in the bubble and you know I think the Avicha Zubats is a pretty good analog for where Pirtle is now so something in the range of a four-year deal for seven million a year I'm guessing that's about what the Spurs can offer he may want more than that don't forget he was the number nine overall pick a little different pedigree than Zubats uh, who was drafted that same year and he may be wanting 11 million a year and I don't think he's going to get it but eventually you got to just go for the life-changing money maybe you'll get eight million a year eight and a half million a year that would be my, my thought there and then I mean, is there any team that you would see as a possible offer sheet team with him, though? I could see Charlotte or Detroit just being like, hey, he's a good player if we can get him at a number that we're fine with, you know, and and especially those two teams, there isn't necessarily a clear cut way for them to use their money. So maybe they maybe they do that. But I don't it, neither of them screams destination to me. And obviously, I think the Suns with DeAndre Ayton, though Ayton appears to be comfortable playing power forward. I don't think the Suns are a particularly good option and the Hawks just traded for two centers yeah and a team i think his price range would be in the mid-level exception type of range sure but is there a team that's a contender that would want to or, or at least trying to make the playoffs that would want to tie up 
their mid-level exception in a restricted free agent offer sheet i'm not sure about that and some teams that you know could use them as a backup but you don't want to necessarily pay them that way i'm trying to think well okay here's one if the jazz i don't think they're going to do this but if the jazz traded rudy gobert would they would purtle for the mid-level exception be a terrible offer for them especially if they're going to extend on mitchell no i don't think so and i i've i'm interested to see you know purtle is restricted he and christian wood are the same age they bring some different strengths to the table do you see though one of them as being markedly superior to the other I think Pirtle has a more proven track record. I think he's he's done more. He's had more opportunities, but he's done he's done a lot with them. Yeah, I think. That but, but he's also, uh, you know, would clearly has the higher upside. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I could see how Pirtle would have more appeal to a better team, and Wood would to a worse team, a team that already has its offensive hierarchy intact. Okay. Def- Two other guys that I want to talk sure. about here as restricted free agents: Chris Boucher is one, age twenty-seven, and very thin, can really only be a backup, but I think he showed enough to be at least in the team's center rotation seems like though he'll just be probably coming back maybe toronto offers him a two-year deal with the second year non-guaranteed at you know three four million a year or something like that just to preserve the 2021 space but get him back in the fold that seems like kind of where that's headed to me um and then you know another guy who's just you not the sort of guy who gets an offer sheet especially at 27 and he's he's only playable in certain matchups particularly in the playoffs just because he's so thin and he's also will make some mistakes he's got to improve his three-point shooting as well but another guy who i really was impressed with on a two-way in san antonio these two-way guys never get these offers but drew eubanks i thought really made some nice plays in the pick and roll he intimidates at the rim he's got like a little short range hook game potentially you know i don't know how great he is moving his feet but he's got pretty good athleticism like i think he can actually absolutely be a solid backup center in the league and maybe again it's just someone that the spurs will look to bring back on an nba contract and he's restricted his qualifying offer is just another two-way contract which is terrible obviously so he's kind of got to just take the first thing that comes along but he's someone i might try to just poach with a little bit of an offer sheet you know try it three million a year and see whether the spurs match or not if you need a, a backup center well and while eubanks is 25 which is you know on the older side for for like a, a young free agent he's still way younger than most of the guys we talked about in that rotational level you know he's younger than Nerlens Noel he's younger than Alex Len and he's older than Harry Giles but Giles is extraordinarily young he had a declined option as a first round pick so yeah Eubanks I don't I don't I I think of him more as you know like yeah just maybe more of a minimum guy but the real I think one of the challenges for Eubanks is that those sorts of like three four million million a year deals are a lot actually better for cap space teams to offer in some ways because if it it, then that makes the remainder of your mid-level that much smaller you know like if you're not a cap space team so you're cutting it kind of in half and that's not nearly as valuable so there aren't there but it's possible I think he ends up you know getting you know going back to the Spurs on a modest deal but could be could be undervalued i think that's a fair a fair point to make anyone who's seen our youtube videos knows that i don't wear formal stuff all the time so when it's time to dress up rather than dress down i highly recommend inochino they were the official outfitter of my wedding i got my tux from there all my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well i felt really good about having them be the outfit of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly because when you go somewhere else you're not going to get something that's made for you so why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom 
room rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you and not only does indochino have the suits that made them famous but now they've got everything blazers pants women's wear outerwear designed and made for you hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen cottons tons of colors tons of patterns you can customize things like the lapel the vents the pockets and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style level up your game with indochino go to indochino.com use the code capspace using our capspace we talk about all the time here on the program you get 10 percent off any purchase of 399 dollars or more that's 10 percent off at indochino i-n-d-o-c-h-i-n-o indochino.com and don't forget that capspace code to let them know that you came from us I was talk Boston Miami game six. It seemed like throughout the third quarter, going into the fourth quarter, that this was going to be one of those crazy games that went down to the end. And then it didn't. It was a 20 to 6 Miami run after Boston six let it or Boston let it 96-90. And we got asked on the NBA cast during the commercials what Miami was going to do about Boston switching. And they had success with that at the start of the fourth quarter in game two, going to Grant Williams at center. And Miami was was really stagnating offensively they were having to go one-on-one a lot they weren't getting good shots at all and we thought they would go back to Dragic which they didn't Dragic didn't even close the game we thought they'd go back to Duncan Robinson which they did he, he could give them a little bit more spacing to go one-on-one and also just with his handoff game but the biggest thing that they did Danny was just they finally for the first time unleashed Bam Adebayo as a one-on-one weapon and he brought them home Absolutely. And there was this huge sequence that actually started when Daniel Tice checked back in. Uh, Brad Stevens brought Tice back in at th- the 6.53 mark. And it became the Bam Adebayo show. So he had, they. I think they the stat that you, they had seven points on three possessions. Is that right? Or seven on four? But basically it was no, this, Yeah, eight points on four possessions. Eight points they, on four they, possessions. They ultimately ended up scoring on eight of nine possessions during the run. Right. And so uh, Bam had a couple, he had a couple of drives, then he had a, and one of them was an and one, which got Tice his, his fifth foul. Well, and, and it was so notable too. It wasn't just a couple of drives. It was, we're just going to spread the floor and Bam Adebayo is just going to go one-on-one against Daniel yeah. Tice. From Start, the top of the key give him the, the ball above the break with the intention of him isolating against Daniel Tice. Yeah, and and, and, and yeah. they got a good look really every time. One the one time that they really kind of keyed on Bam, he makes this beautiful wraparound pass to Jimmy Butler, and Tice ends up committing his second foul, so he is in for just about a minute. Commits his second and goes back to Grant Williams, and at that point, uh, Miami moved away from it a little bit, but. I mean, not only was the damage done, but then other players on Miami really took hold in Miami. And, you know, in that last stretch, so if we want to use the inflection point of when Boston was up 96 to 90, from there on out, 35 to 17 in favor of the Heat. Most of that inside the arc and from the free throw line, 11 to 14 from the field, 10 to 13 from the free throw line. And Boston missed a ton of shots as well. But a lot of them were well contested. Yeah, what were the stats on Boston offensively? Like they definitely got into a point where they were basically trying to shoot 10 point shots, but that's when it was really almost over already. And they're down nine with three minutes to go. I thought they got some pretty decent looks at times. Walker had a couple, Hayward had a big one. Jalen Brown had one, but like they took a ton of threes and they just couldn't make any of them. What were the stats on that? Well, so let's take out the last two minutes because that's kind of as you were talking about that. That got a little bit that got a little bit wonky. So if it's just from from yeah. that and from that point, 
Boston, they only got two shots in the restricted area, um, and they split those. Then they were they had one floater, which they missed, one mid-ranger, which they missed, and one for nine from three. And by comparison, Miami, in that same window, five of six in the restricted area, made both of the threes. I, Duncan Robinson had at least one of those. And also, they got a bunch of free throws. Like, Bam Bam had four in pretty quick succession. And they were, you know, they were getting a couple fouls. Iguodala actually got sent to the free throw line on a smart foul as well. And yeah, that was a beautiful beautiful ATO by the way where uh they this was after Bam was killing him they bring Grant Williams in they get Bam the ball at the elbow and then they just had Iguodala cut back door on Kemba Walker to pick up Kemba Walker's fifth foul that was a great ATO to take advantage of all the attention that Bam was going to get uh after he'd scored the way he had over the last few possessions yeah and, and during that stretch Hero had some moments Duncan Robinson did too and like I, I had posited before that Miami doesn't have a lot of individual ice kind of iso switching breakers and it's true they don't have that singular you know that singular player but they got a lot from Bam he was the guy that you suggested was their best I had said it was Goran Dragic who as you said didn't close the game and a really impressive effort by by Miami to get good shots and Boston yeah yes they missed more in that stretch than they 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 could have made a couple and it would have looked it would have looked different overall but Miami was getting better shots they were getting to the free throw line and to be able to do that against a a scheme and a personnel group that had vexed them earlier in the series was really notable. And I think that does bode really well for Miami moving into the NBA Finals. Yeah, and we talked about it like, hey, Grant Williams looks awesome right now. Are they going to take him out? He was in, you know, it was, they started a 22 to 8 run to go up 96 90 when he checked in and they went to that switching defense. Although the Heat certainly could have tried to just do some stuff to get Williams off of Adebayo and then Adebayo could have gone at whoever it was. And Hero had a couple plays against Kemba Walker in transition as well after Boston misses. And it definitely did ultimately turn into make or miss league to some degree. Boston made their first five corner threes of the game and then missed their last seven, many of which were some pretty good looks uh, against the zone. Uh, They were 10 out of 28 on twos away from the rim and Miami was 15 out of 30. That was a big difference. And then Miami also shot it extremely well from three, 11 out of 22 on above the break threes. And I thought Miami did well to adjust eventually because clearly Boston was really trying to take away the three-pointer. That was what Miami usually makes their living on. And Boston only allowed 14 three-point attempts in the first half. And so Miami really started attacking the rim and that was a, a big feature. And Boston just couldn't quite get as much going to the basket at the very end of the game so it was uh certainly boston had a lot of shots that they would like to have back but i would say that the better team won this series and uh not much to say other than that about this i mean there in terms of the you know there many people will say oh boston got unlucky in the series but i i don't think so i think miami i mean this was actually probably in the end miami's most convincing win of the series to win at 125 113 well and especially if you remember that part of the reason you know paralleling game five to some extent that this was as close as it was during the competitive portion was Miami had another section where they couldn't stop turning the ball over and Boston was getting was getting good looks out yeah. of that. I thought that Miami's half-court defense, it was shaky in the first half just because everyone was making shots, but I thought overall, you know, they were they were doing okay. And it was it was a lot of that transition dynamism. Jalen Brown had a couple of pick sixes. Jason Tatum got another one or one on Tyler Hero, which was something that happened in game five as well. Hero threw a flat-footed pass and got it, got it pick six. But what I thought was the real another 
tactical decision by Brad Stevens that I think blew up in his face was in game five, they got good minutes from Ennis Canner and they were able to, you know, get some offensive rebounds and everything else. And Miami had a much more specific, cogent plan of attack in those minutes. They largely went to Canner when they went to Canner when Bam was off the floor. And basically what it was. Although even when Bam was on the floor, they they brought him in. They had Cantor guarding Iguodala. They had Cantor guarding Iguodala. But so Miami had a, a better plan of attack there. And I, there were, there were people in the in the, the chat for for our, for uh, the live cast talking about shooting luck because Andre Iguodala four of four from three, but they were basically warm up threes. Nobody was near him, and part of what was happening it was it was not only on the on the Iguodala ones, but on other threes by other guys. Duncan Robinson had a couple where Jalen Brown overhelped off of Duncan Robinson. Is when a team, especially when, in some ways when they have smart defenders, when a team has an obvious weak point and the, the his teammates are uncomfortable with him kind of let's say defending one-on-one two-on-two yeah. you get the idea you see it's sort of the it's sort of the analog of when a team has a bad shooter and it ends up affecting everybody else more than them where it just it permeates the rest of the defense so Jalen Brown I mean he he's an aggressive and intuitive helper anyway you know Jimmy Butler you know got burned a couple times for Marcus Smart open threes on a similar concept in the two three but what Jalen Brown was like well crap I mean this action they're not going to be able to contain it so I should get over there however when you're guarding Duncan Robinson those same rules and instincts can actually burn you because leaving Duncan Robinson wide open for a three is actually more dangerous but he's like I'm assuming well crap it's Ennis Cantor like I mean if they're defending out in space they're making him work and so it was creating two kind of different things so one was the Duncan Robinson three and then another one was the Andre Guadala pick and pop with you know an hour and a half to get the shot off with no sort of contest and it, yes Iguodala is not the greatest shooter in the world yes he's super reluctant but if that's the kind of shot you're conceding he's going to do a lot better than the 26% he's shooting in the postseason or the 30% he shot in limited regular season or even the 33% he shot in his career because these are way better looks you know that's the way this works well and clearly they had a discussion about how they're going to attack camp canter as you alluded to and I'm sure they had the conversation of like hey Andre like be ready you need to attack him and part of why I didn't really care for the insertion of canter was it was a game where they couldn't score in game five and the, and he helped them change that you know he helps the other team score too but also they weren't really expecting him to come in he hadn't been playing much and so you could kind of get away with that when they hadn't prepared for him to go back to the same thing again and i understand why they tried it like he played well but once he started getting his ass kicked to go back to him again in the second quarter really didn't make any sense and as it turned out Cantor was negative 11 in only eight minutes one of two and they just gave up a ton of threes because as you mentioned they felt like they really needed to help out so much on those pick and rolls um well just just briefly yeah again not all on Ennis Kanter Miami had a 167 offensive rating when Kanter was on the floor in his seven and a half minutes that's bad yeah and there's a, a lot of Boston players who really wish that they could have some back Tatum that missed a lot of layups around well, and around also the I thought Tatum yeah. had an O for the first quarter again yeah so right, he did yeah, have four so. assists I mean he had a wonderful passing first half he had I think eight assists in the first half yeah. ended up with 11 and but he never really found a rhythm as an individual scorer in this game he had a couple of you know step in threes and that kind of thing but the one-on-one creation what had made Tatum you know the the bell of the ball in February and March and then at times in the bubble facing better defenders whether it was the cumulative fatigue of playing you know so many series he just didn't quite have that mojo in in this in this series in particular but he also didn't in the Toronto series as a one-on-one creator for himself I would say that in picking Boston in this series and picking obviously Milwaukee as well against Miami is I just have continually underestimated the heat offense 
Yeah. And because we felt, okay, you switch them. Do they really have guys who can do enough one-on-one? And certainly Dragic has had moments this game he, he didn't do as much. But And we respect Duncan Robinson, but there's kind of a thought of, okay, you really lock in on him. You can take him away. And the Celtics would do that, but then other stuff would open up. And Adebayo, his gravity as a role man, his playmaking, his ability to do stuff off the dribble, and he had a career-high 32 points, 5 assists, 11 of 15 from the field, 10 of 11 from the free throw line. And Butler, again, you know, I don't think he's like an, a ridiculous offensive player and he had these shooting struggles in the regular season which he seems to have overcome here in the bubble and maybe he's someone who was able to get right with his shot a little bit more than we thought he would and but it's really the and we saw this against boston where boston is very good at okay you get a matchup that we don't like with kemba walker we'll switch him out right like we're gonna hide him and then you get him switched on to somebody and we'll either help or or we'll switch him out but against miami in a lot of these lineups there really wasn't anywhere for him to hide that well and there's just so many ways that Miami found to attack and Hero was another guy who obviously had a wonderful series he was great in this game despite the pick sixes he stays in plays point guard at the end and had seven assists that's gonna be pretty close to a career high for him I I would bet uh 19 points and Iguodala again is still you like you like oh he can't shoot you know is he really a good offensive player but no like he's finds Jimmy Butler on a on an easy backdoor he he has become a really good screener he can shoot shots when he's open like he was uh, plus 20 in this game so there's just a lot of good players on this team and that particularly the way that they move the ball and they use Adebayo as a hub to just run through all these different options on handoffs when there's three different guys that can come off a handoff with Bam Adebayo and do something on the floor whereas you compare that to Denver and they got one guy like that that's Jamal Murray right Uh, at least with this current configuration and it just becomes so hard to guard they just have so many different ways that they can attack and it's not a traditional NBA offense compared to a lot of these teams are like okay we got to lock in on this guy the most you know you do that there's miami i've made the analogy to the finger in the dike many times in the series stevens would clean up one thing and then miami would would find something else and it seemed like boston was continually reacting most of the time to what the heat were doing and something else that i think is is really striking here is so miami in the playoffs using cleaning the glasses garbage time filter they're third in offensive rating and they played some great defensive teams they've played some great defensive teams and they put you know milwaukee in the last round boston in this round and, and then indiana i mean they were especially without sabonis but they, they were they were a more limited opposition but still that is a great group to go through and then one of the teams above them is utah who only played denver and that was denver's part at least significantly before they figured everything out then the lakers are the only other team above them by the way but here's another thing that i thought was so interesting in the playoffs again using the cleaning glass garbage filter miami's actually below average in three-point percentage. They're 36%. So you could say, oh, man, they're riding really hot shooting. They're fourth at the rim. They're third from floater range. Like, they're they're making they're making a lot of these shots. They're getting to the free throw line an absolute ton. Yeah, that's and, something that definitely carries over from the regular season. Absolutely. Right and and they're not turning it over a ridiculous amount or anything like that. So they, they have a lot of these things that they're doing well. And if you want to use that, the, the location version of effective field goal percentage, they're doing okay. But they're, you know, they're getting, they're getting these shots and they have they have really talented shooters and their defense has been strong overall and and it's and over the course of it i mean yes there was the there was a stretch when jay crowder was hitting every shot and that helped but then he cooled off and iguodala had all of them today but it's not like he's been ridiculous in postseason so i've been exceedingly impressed and and the the big picture point that i want to make on miami is i think we need to appreciate 
what they just accomplished. Miami has only lost three times in the playoffs. They swept the Pacers. They took care of business there. Then they beat the best regular season team in the NBA in five games. And yes, it's true that Giannis was hurt for part of that time, but they were they were kicking their ass even before that. And then Boston, a totally valiant opponent, they dispatched them in six. And it, I, I think Miami, to go through that group of teams so cleanly is absolutely remarkable. Yeah, and to have had 3-1 leads in both of those series as well any other kind of smaller notes you wanted to hit on from this game the Jalen Brown injury uh so Jalen for the second time in the these playoffs got injured on a breakaway where somebody kind of hit him strangely when he was going up this time it was Jimmy Butler catching Jalen Brown's left ankle and and he ended up having a left knee issue stayed in the game we don't know thankfully it doesn't seem like it was super serious we'll find out more over the next couple days presumably uh I mean I I didn't see much there to think to think intent, especially because Brown kind of kept his foot behind him in a way that doesn't usually happen. But I hate guys getting hit in the air. You know, that is something that I'm very, very sensitive to. So hope he's okay. Think that the league should consider, you know, having maybe maybe thinking about some sort of review for those sorts of things anyway, just to kind of like it just anything that leads to a guy in the air getting touched scares the crap out of me, especially when it didn't, you know, like it's not like Jimmy Butler not saying yeah. he did anything like malicious or anything that there was was no chance that he was going to affect the shot or anything and anything like that so it's like this one wasn't as dangerous as the kyle lowry one which really which really pissed me off but it's again you know it's that same well, I idea. Thought it, wasn't it siakam oh it was siakam lowry that was a different play that was the one that was kind of the undercut you're right yeah no I, that, that's definitely a concern for me particularly when it's a play from behind where the guy just has no chance of, of making a play on the ball and i thought jalen braun took some steps forward in these playoffs as well he had a really nice game with 26 points a in 40 minutes um marcus smart was definitely a little thirsty 22 shot attempts for him is a lot now some of that's against the zone he was 4 of 13 from three only had two assists which uh, he that's really how he'd been carving up miami a lot but i thought he took a few shots that were you know probably four or five which he'll do but uh that's the one thing that i think he needs to continue to clean up in his game and you know, kemba walker uh, there was some talk post game about his knee he said he wasn't wasn't going to make excuses uses about it at this point obviously Gordon Hayward clearly was not himself coming back in game three he gave the Celtics something but he also you know was not particularly dynamic particularly in this game I thought that that missed layup he had was definitely a, a killer for him but I think the Kemba Walker situation will be something to watch for the Celtics in the future because this is really his first time playing at the highest levels against Toronto and against Miami and I think against Toronto he caused some major problems in their base defense but it's really hard for him to do much when he's not playing against a conventional pick and roll defense and we saw that he's really struggled to beat switches in this game he struggled to beat switches some in the Toronto series now maybe that was due to that troublesome knee but that's uh, that knee isn't going away uh, at age 30 either and with their long-term salary structure tatum getting a max that kicks in at the end of 2021 maybe there's a thought that paying kemba walker a max contract as opposed to using those resources elsewhere on on a team that's going to be they'll pay the tax but they're not going to pay it to like you know a brooklyn nets 2013 type of level that uh 
that bears monitoring a little bit because you know he also is a defensive liability we even posited at times that they're better off without him defense they're definitely better off without him defensively but they're against this team that they might be better off without him entirely at the end of games and so that's uh that'll be something to watch like he he's and they've you know tatum brown if they're going to keep hayward around smart can do some playmaking like maybe they have enough offensively without him in the end we gotta i mean a lot of it depends on how tatum continues to grow as well if he really gets into being a upper tier superstar then maybe walker really helps you in the regular season but at the absolute highest levels which is where this team is setting its sights now he might be a little bit too limited particularly as he's getting older so that's just something to think about and watch for the celtics a great team player though he is anything else on the miami side that stuck out to you uh, Jimmy Butler hitting uh, some c- tough contested shots early in the first quarter. I thought that helped keep help keep Miami in it. Uh, Dragic, you know, c- kind of coming back to earth a little bit. I still think he had some had some nice moments. Had that crazy three when it lo- when it looked like Miami was was having some having some struggles. You mentioned here was great. I think we're, we're worth worth emphasizing that again. And Solomon Hill playing over Derek Jones Jr. Kelly Olynyk getting a DNP. I wonder how that's going to continue into the NBA Finals. Oh man, there's so much to talk about that with with that. I'm sure. We'll We'll do that preview probably tomorrow, I'm guessing, for Dunked On Prime listeners. Let's talk. The legends are true. <laughs> Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last about now last night's game as the lakers finished off denver well the denver nuggets storybook season is over they don't get that first game in the attempted 3-1 comeback despite a, a nice turn in the third quarter cutting a 16 point lead all the way down to a tie game but never were actually able to take the lead and then lebron james finished them off in spectacular fashion yeah absolutely i mean lebron was was just dominant there were a few of them that could have been offensive fouls but also he had the jump shot working james well i'll do the the whole line first 38 points 15 to 25 from the field almost all of that inside the arc he was one for four from three got to the line eight times 16 assists 10 rebounds or 16 rebounds 10 assists two turnovers plus 12 in his 40 minutes of action yeah, and he actually, that was the most that he's played. He actually stayed in the whole fourth quarter, which he hasn't been doing in this postseason. And you could tell in the third quarter when they went on the run, he was starting to feel it a little bit and really tried to take over at that point. Didn't quite work as the Nuggets came back in part when he was out of the game at the end of the quarter. But then once he saw a couple go through the hoop on the mid-rangers towards the end, it was just really a virtuoso jump shooting performance right up there with some of the best in his career. I was having flashbacks to a game we actually referenced in the last pod, the game two of 2018 against the Raptors when he just started going crazy in the third quarter. This didn't quite reach that type of a YOLO level, but it was definitely up there. The three that he hit when he just picked up his dribble to make a pass and they left him and he drained it that pretty much put it away and when lebron james particularly when he has the jump shot falling like that he's absolutely the best player in the world and with the demise of Kawhi, we'll see what ends up happening in the finals but certainly nobody who's going to be in the finals 
is his competition for that anthony davis clearly hobbled to some degree by the ankle and so i mean lebron james he's on track for it i mean unless he just has a terrible finals he's probably going to regain the crown as the best player in the world at age 35 there's only one other player who's ever done that in my recollection and that's michael jordan who that's how old he was when he was winning the 98 finals against the jazz so this is another huge feather in the cap for lebron and obviously we'll preview the finals once we know who their opponent is going to be but this is really just outstanding work and in the end the Nuggets defense just was not good enough in this series and and that was a, another major thing that we'll have to talk about where the Lakers you know 121 offensive rating in this game 125 last game and the Nuggets just couldn't quite keep up in the end yeah and I mean there there are a lot of different wrinkles in this game um, but I want to start with a kind of another big picture thing which is the importance of closing this out in five I mean Anthony Davis looked like he might have tweaked his ankle again. Paul Millsap fell into it late in the fourth quarter. And we don't know how long the Eastern Conference Finals are going to go. And to my knowledge, we don't even know when the finals are going to start either way. I haven't heard anything yet definitively either direction. So just having it done, not getting any miles on the tires whenever the finals start is extremely important for this Lakers team. LeBron playing 40 minutes, AD playing 35, and avoiding the injury risk, avoiding the fatigue and everything like that. And then that, that is, you know, they were facing a valiant opponent and one that yet again came back from what appeared to be a version of the dead you know being down 15 in the second half but getting just getting the w is exceedingly important yeah and i mean the difference was that the utah jazz and the la clippers didn't have lebron james lebron james wasn't going to let the nuggets get some momentum after going down three games to one again i mean he he just decided that that's what it was going to be and sometimes that works sometimes it doesn't but when he's hitting the jumper like that there was no stopping him and you know i think the nuggets could have done some things better for sure you know i still think that they didn't pack the paint enough but given the personnel on hand i'm not really sure how they could have done much better of a job against denver other than or or i'm sorry against the lakers other than just trying to run the lakers off or or, uh away from the rim and force them out to the three-point line a little bit more than they did uh was there anything that any other like big themes that you really wanted to hit on i mean there's a lot of really interesting stuff that happened in this game uh that i wanted to get into like some strategic stuff but any kind of big things i i don't know if if this counts i mean because because it's a through line of a couple of games in the series, Michael Malone's conservatism. I mean, that was sure. to me a, a huge part of this game that Nikola Jokic picks up his first foul as a Euro foul. And then and gets- you knew, you knew what was coming as soon as that happened. Like he just, it's unbelievable with him. And, and I mean, we've been tweeting about it and talking about it on this show for years. And then even still, he picks up his fifth foul and just like raises his hand to take credit for it with like four guys around Dwight Howard, like just, just use your brain man like how can he be such a smart player and yet have these mental lapses when it comes to fouls it's ridiculous yeah and so Jokic only played eight minutes and 17 seconds in the first half because he committed that that first euro foul then committed his second a shooting foul about six minutes into the into the first quarter and then committed his third foul fairly early into the third quarter and Michael Malone chose not to leave him in and it is true that Jokic can get his fouls in bunches he can be a high foul foul player and even though hilariously during the interview Malone said Jokic is a player who's trustworthy with with foul like with two fouls and then immediately after he just sat him with two fouls because he didn't trust him to play with two fouls but Jokic represents your best chance of winning and especially if Jamal Murray is limited and he looked progressively 
probably more limited over the course of the game, you you have to roll those dice because it's not like they have the Nuggets, like any other team, have a suitable replacement for Jokic. I thought Plumlee had a couple of moments, but broadly, I mean, he was getting abused defensively and offensively. They needed Jokic a lot and entirely possible he fouls out. But you, it was basically guaranteed that Jokic played fewer minutes this way than if you had let him go go further and then fouled out. No, you're right. And even though it even took him out with his fourth foul with a few minutes left in the third quarter, two minutes left in the third quarter, he brings him back to start the fourth. But at that point, he's already only played eight minutes in the first. Like, why not just leave him out there and just it's it's just not using his brain by Mike Malone. It's just okay. Oh, I thought you were talking about Jokic fouling, but fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and obviously. Obviously, it's got to be frustrating for Malone to see Nikola Jokic be so irresponsible and to say, all right, if he's going to do some dumb shit like that, like I have to take him out because he's going to fall fall out faster and and I can't trust him despite what he said in the interview. So, but you got to just roll the dice, right? I mean, there's this conception of risk of, oh, what if he fouls out as opposed to the more immediate risk of, oh, hey, what if we get down by so much during this time that we can't come back? And as it turned out, they did come back. But if Nikola Jokic played more minutes in the first half, maybe they're up five or 10 and it's a totally different game instead of they tie the game and never take the lead with that big run in the third quarter. And there's also this thing, I started to say this, like, it's just not using your brain. It's just, okay, this is the rule and this is how we do it, right? Like, all right, so two fouls in the first quarter, you're going to sit and then the minute the second quarter starts, then you're going to come back in as rather than bring them back in with two minutes left in the first quarter when by the way they usually have Anthony Davis and LeBron James together and you really need your best player out there to combat them but oh if he picks up his third foul a minute into the second quarter with 11 minutes left in the half as opposed to with 13 minutes left in the half right beforehand like that's some big difference it's just it's just not using your brain that's all it is and it's just relying on the safe choice being quote-unquote risk-averse when that's not even the bigger risk. So anyway, we, we've talked about all this a, a long time here, but particularly when, you know, they're down eight points, ten points, double digits uh, at times. Well, and when it's an elimination game. Yeah. Um, any other kind of uh, big things you wanted to talk about here? I have, a, I have a bunch of small ones, but I think that's all of, like, the truly, the truly big ones. So the biggest thing that I noted in this game is the Lakers had a ton of success. Oh, thank you. With a play where they, and they hadn't run this that much to my recollection maybe they had a few times and it didn't work that well but I mean they probably ran that play 15 times in this game and they scored maybe scored on at least 10 of these possessions if not more and they got great shots pretty much every time and it was having a small guard screen the screener so screen usually Jokic and then the Nuggets like to play this pick and roll defense where Jokic is further out on the floor and then you can't let the ball handler get ahead of steam. And so if he has to get through that screen, he's behind the play. The screen can be set for LeBron James. And now LeBron has a head of steam going at Jokic. And once you have a head of steam going at Jokic, he's powerless to make a play, particularly when he's in foul trouble. And so probably about five, six, seven times they ran that. LeBron got a, a couple of layups. He was just playing with an incredible verve and energy. Then in the second half, they decided, okay, here's what we're going to do. If you're going to have a small guy screen Jokic, then we'll just have that small guy switch on to Dwight Howard before he sets the screen. But then your problem is you're getting the small guy onto Le- LeBron James in that pick and roll. And so that was Gary Harris a lot of times. And Gary Harris is a great defender. But when LeBron James is just playing this decisively and with this much force, even Gary Harris, one of the best defensive two guards, a guy who absolutely wowed us 
these last two series and his demise in this series I thought was a big part of why the Nuggets really struggled you know when he was meriting 40 minutes a game in that Clippers series they looked a lot better or, or at the end of the Jazz series but LeBron James just quick first step get a shoulder by Gary Harris and it's gonna be a foul he's just even it doesn't even have to get into the post on him necessarily he's just too strong and too forceful and just goes right through the shoulder of the guy who's not in front of him most of the time so there's a few controversial calls in that but generally he's not in front of him and he draws a foul or he just goes right through him and and it's a short floater and so they really never came up with a solution to that and then in the end LeBron was getting the switch and hitting just like really difficult jump shots as well but it was just the overall decisiveness from LeBron not dancing around not dribbling the air out of the ball so there's five seconds left not backing up wiping his hands on his jersey to get some sweat on the ball so it'll stick with the leather ball and just being like no as soon as I get this guy on me I'm going as hard as I can and that's what makes me one of the two greatest players of all time it was really just an incredible performance by him and the Lakers did a great job of putting him in a position to succeed in a way that the Nuggets just did not have the personnel to handle yeah it's a great point and it also was in stark contrast to me it made it thought, made me think back on the Clippers series that their star players didn't really exert that same decisiveness and that isn't, you know, Kawhi is a different style of player than this version of LeBron. And there are great players who do a lot of different things. But Le- it when he has a physical advantage and doesn't give time to recover, there's no quarter for, for that. And when you don't have good help defenders, which the Nuggets have a couple, but they don't have that many. And LeBron's a pain in the ass in those circumstances, too. That it was it just was creating so many opportunities, mostly for himself, actually, in this one. But of course, he can pass and he did have some great passes. It just they were often in, in other actions. Yeah, and I really thought particularly at the end of the game yeah early on the nuggets had i had pretty good success i thought getting the ball out of lebron's hand and forcing danny green to make a decision which he really is very poor at he'll take these dribble in two pointers which he never makes he almost never drives successfully although he did pick up a terrible second foul on Jokic, which i mean it was a foul but a terrible decision to foul danny green on a layup when Jokic was screened off and kcp as well can throw some passes that are questionable at best he, was, he is starting to show some pick and roll ability in detroit but that really seems to have atrophied with his decision making so they're doing a good job of forcing those guys to make plays early on but only forcing 24 three-point attempts from the Lakers when they were absolutely destroying the Nuggets in the paint in the first half with 36 paint points just in the first half they didn't do a good enough job of packing the paint they don't didn't have the intelligence out there with Harris not really playing that much Monte Morris just can't really have enough of an effect at the rim he's not like a good dig guy the way Harris is Michael Porter Jr isn't going to really be able to execute the scheme that well Millsap you know Grant is always going to be sticking to LeBron Millsap does a pretty good job of helping off the right guys and trying to clog up the paint but he doesn't have a ton of athleticism anymore and he's not not going to play that much either he he was he had a hilarious Millsap line by the way 13 points one of eight from the field and 10 of 11 (laughs) from the free throw (laughs) had some spectacular flails and flops in there too yeah yeah I mean that was their last guess they got within four and then Danny Green hit that pick and pop three-pointer from the LeBron off off that same play, of course, that they were running every time um, to push it to seven. That was the key one. And then LeBron started going crazy with the jumpers. Uh, So yeah, and then the Nuggets transition defense wasn't good enough either, particularly uh, in the first half. I thought uh, Lakers had 18 fast break points, again, doing a great job of just throwing long passes. Like this is a one of the hardest teams I've ever seen, maybe up there with the Warriors of just how difficult it is to keep them out of transition, no matter how much you try to do so and the nuggets you know are not a great 
transition defensive team. Well, and we got to see something that you and I focused on in the series, which is anytime Jamal Murray drives, the play finishes with Jamal Murray driving to the basket, they're going to try to push it ahead fast. There was even one where Murray turned it over and they just, LeBron did a hit ahead and, and they got something on it. And then there was, the I think Murray had a layup and then LeBron just threw an absolute missile to AD who had never gotten back on the play. And so that just to have a few easy buckets that way, the Lakers were credited with 18 fast break points. And yeah, I think that that's absolutely huge. Got, you know, they both teams actually ran a ton off of their live rebounds in this game per cleaning the glass. Lakers ran on 38% of their live rebounds. The Nuggets ran on 41%. Those are both ridiculous proportions there. Um, and it, it also did make for a, a, a very engaging series. Any other like kind of small notes that, that you wanted to hit on here? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, I thought that Rondo's defense had some. There were some. There were some real matador and that the as you as you call it the like dumb smart foul um, where you the other team is in the bonus and you foul to stop the fast break so you guarantee exactly what you were trying not to not to have happen. Yeah, that that was pretty rough at, at the end of the third. He did hit a couple of big threes when the defense went went under. The Nuggets generally actually did a better job stopping the Rondo AD pick and roll in part I think because AD was a little bit limited and Lakers ended up not closing with Rondo in fact uh, Rondo did not play in the fourth quarter Caruso played the whole fourth quarter and I think that helped uh, their offense late too they also closed the game with Dwight Howard which they had not done much of they took him out at the very end of the quarter but once things were already decided and and Danny Green also was out there with the closing group interestingly enough which he basically had not been earlier on Caldwell Pope got some some time in the fourth so it was a little bit different of of a group for Frank Vogel at the end and then LeBron playing the whole fourth quarter I think that's part of why Rondo didn't play in the fourth and they just decided that they're going to run everything through LeBron and once again the the Nuggets didn't do a good enough job with Caruso on the floor Green not a great playmaker you've also got Howard to just get the ball out of LeBron's hands uh, and but when he was rolling like this and playing that confidently and that aggressively easier said than done um any other little things for you here yeah Jamal Murray I mean he he definitely looked physically limited and also you could you could see some of it in his shot chart two for eight on jump shots three for five from floater and then only three shots in the restricted area though he did get a couple of free throw he got five free throws overall in the game and the Lakers were doubling him at moments I got frustrated at times that that, that even though Murray was limited that they could have isolated especially when Caruso was in the game that they the Lakers were comfortable putting Caruso on Murray and I think Murray can roast him and yes they can shade they can shade attention but I think that creates better seams in a defense rather than a a screen and a double especially when it's not Jokic that's on the floor yeah if, it's, if you're giving it to Jokic with it with a four on three that's fine but if it's somebody else then that's a problem and so I, I thought that that was that was missing you know maybe the series gets longer there but you know it, it it's not like it, it's a shame that it ended this way for Murray when you consider how incredible he was for extended periods of these playoffs but that also is something that happens over the course of you know the repetition and the banging that happens in in long playoff series yeah and Murray had a ton of highs in these playoffs some incredible incredible games but he also had games where he was you know like tonight where he really didn't do that much and whether that's due to fatigue he really was not getting the separation on the jump shot in particular his three ball didn't look good and noteworthy remember when Jamal Murray's getting up like 12 threes a game in that jazz series well he's getting up no threes in this series basically they really did an awesome job of taking that away I really I thought that the Nuggets should have done more for him off ball the few times they went to that in this series it actually looked pretty good but it, it really was 
you know, a handoff to him. They didn't really run any kind of floppy action to get him off the screen, just to give a, a little bit of a different look for the Lakers. I think the Lakers got more and more comfortable guarding some of the Nuggets' pet actions. And of course, part of the problem for the Nuggets was outside of Michael Porter Jr., no one could really hit a three in this game. Grant, Millsap, like those guys had some very good looks that just didn't go down, despite the fact that Jeremy Grant had a wonderful third quarter. I think he had 16 in that period. But those threes not going down just made it a little bit too difficult for them offensively. And this wasn't overall a great three-point shooting team. You shouldn't expect that necessarily from this group. But I think the next step for this Nuggets team is they just got to get Michael Porter up to snuff defensively. Like if they do that, and now you have this great shooter on the wing who can cut hard, who can hit the offensive glass, who can just, even with a little bit of airspace, can just jack a contested three over somebody if you leave him. If they can get him going to where he's not going to just get completely roasted in any kind of a defensive situation, and after being much better against the Clippers in the second half of the Jazz series, he really got totally abused by LeBron, who's just too smart to let the Nuggets get away with hiding him whenever he was on the floor. But that's the next step for this Nuggets team, I think is to take another step to just be a little bit more than the two-dimensional Jokic, Murray, maybe some Porter Isos on occasion, like really integrate him into this offense as a starter and use next season to get him ready as a defensive player. Wholeheartedly agree. I I pulled the stats for Jamal Murray's three-point shooting in the playoffs. 49% in the first round, 46.5% in the second round, 26.4% in this round. But when you account for the difference in volume, Murray... 46.6% in the playoffs on 133 three-pointers. And the volume can go up. I mean, that's an an important part, I think, the off-ball game. And the off-ball game could actually change based on Michael Porter Jr. too. You can put the ball in his hands and if he, you know, get get him to make a couple reads and everything else like that. So I think there's a lot of room for this Nuggets team to grow. And I'm I'm so pleased that they were better defensively in the, you know, after the first four games of the playoffs because that is a mandatory part of their eventual success. So yeah, I was very pleased with that. Just briefly, that block that AD had on Michael Porter Jr. moving oh, yeah. to the summit, that was absolutely incredible. And, and AD played, I, I thought, uh, clearly being a little bit limited. They did not really go to him in isolation very much, but he still had some nice finishes and gave them enough. I, I, he wasn't his usual guy defensively. They didn't have him switching out on the perimeter nearly as much. They didn't go to the AD at center lineups as much as they did, in part because uh, Howard was doing a pretty good job. They didn't really want AD guarding Jokic that much either. Uh, they didn't go even when Jokic was guarding him they didn't really go to him and obviously at the end of the game it was more LeBron just going to work and I think that was LeBron kind of taking on that responsibility this is what they rested him for all playoffs so he could go 40 minutes push the ball play great defense on Jamal Murray at times and just bring a level of force and athleticism that even at 35 years old there's nobody on the Nuggets who could begin to match it one other thing I wanted to mention was uh, I thought it could have been a swing point in the game and ended up not being one was the six point trip down the floor that was fueled by Dwight Howard committing a flagrant one foul on Paul Millsap. So basically he fouled Millsap after the shot was in the air. And then so it's Millsap got an extra chance and then they made a basket after that because you get the yeah. ball back on a flagrant. Great job by Millsap just not getting a technical as he came back at him, but just going back to jaw him enough so that the referees took a look at it. Remember that's one of the criteria hilariously. Uh what is what is that Goddard's law where the a, a criteria becomes 
something that people shoot for. I mean, fouling is kind of a, a, or foul calls is kind of like that too with the the way things are refereed these days. But where it's just like it's supposed to be a criteria, but then you can just like game the system and create that and get a reward that you know it's not supposed to be rewarding you for going back at the guy. It's just supposed to punish the guy for causing you to go back at him. But uh, that's something that they might want to just change that criteria if anyone ever actually figures that out. I don't think that players actually know that that's one of the criteria and that that's taught but it should be as long as it is one of the criteria agreed so that will do it for this mega episode of dunked on if you're not a subscriber yet you can get the rest of our content four days a week gonna be essential as we go into free agency link is in the show notes dunked on prime supportingcast.fm slash join and also don't forget about hollinger and duncan that's coming out tomorrow we're gonna do more of the offseason mailbag john and i and also talk about what we've learned about basketball from these playoffs talk to y'all soon at bet365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.